0: Hi, and welcome to the Everywhere podcast. We're a global community of founders and operators who've come together to support the next generation of builders. So the premise of the podcast is just that, founders interviewing other founders about the trials and tribulations of building a company. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Serge. Hey, how's it going? Good. Thrilled to have you on the Venture Everywhere podcast this week, although it'll be probably September before we get into season two, but planning ahead, we are. But really excited, been a longtime fan and supporter. And so it's just great to have you here.
1: And investor, you guys were the first check into our very first round, which feels like it was a whole lifetime ago. I had a lot less gray in my beard (laughs) when you guys wrote that check. So
0: I actually don't remember who introduced us, but I remember them saying like, these awesome guys from Google, and it was just like all these buzzwords, and I couldn't keep up. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, I love to meet them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm—I'll tell you something. It's funny. Friendships are like in this kind of world. Relationships and friendships really, really matter. And I try to over-index on trust in relationships. So hopefully, that person was over-indexing on that. And I think five years later, as much as you're like an investor in our company and a supporter in a lot of the. Various things that I try to do in kind of the startup ecosystem overall, you've become a good friend too. So just funny instances where I run into you in the subway, or we go to dinner with other friends and stuff. So it's fun seeing that. Hopefully that's kind of the underlying theme from that first email that came in.
0: For sure. And that's kind of the theme of Everywhere Ventures is that our kind of founder and operator community is really all the source of our deal flow. So the person that did make the introduction, I think was an LP but it was just like the high level, basically anyone in our network who thinks that we should connect. I'm happy to do that. Okay. So you're the second person I've interviewed today that has a background really in venture. So I'm kind of curious to start there, how you got yourself from kind of venture to operator and then to founder. So we see all configurations of that mix of people starting. I started as the founder and then went into venture. You kind of did it the other way.
1: Yeah. So my, my background, I studied engineering in college. I did mechanical engineering. There aren't that many jobs that were interesting to me to go into after graduation. So I took a role in investment banking, which was not a fit for me whatsoever. I went to college at Stanford where I went from 98 to 2002 when like, it was the heart of... The, interesting
0: like, years. <laughs> yes.
1: So, Silicon Valley, boom... Google was founded when I was at Stanford, and just there was like a ton of exciting stuff that was happening. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So I went and kind of got what I perceived as a prestigious job out of college, which I think a lot of people, at least at that time did. It was a, a mistake in retrospect, but it was a really good learning experience. And a lot of people were kind of going into these more traditional private equity types jobs out of that type of experience. And my instinct was I wanted to go towards like Venture capital role. And I joined a a fund in in Palo Alto called Globe's Fan Capital Partners in the mid 2000s. We were investors in companies like Palo Alto Networks, Roku, and a bunch of iconic companies from the mid 2000s. We were a series A, series B fund. But I learned all about like venture and investing. And it was a different world then. But I got kind of hooked and addicted to startups, but it just like technology ecosystems and everything that was happening ended up going to business school. And after business school, I spent a long time working at Google for eight years, initially working on Google Wallet, and then joining the Android Marketplace team, which ended up becoming Google Play, and joined the leadership team there to really build Google Play from the ground up and building the app ecosystem. When I joined Google, I kind of was like, okay, not sure what I want to do, but there's a lot of real cool and innovative people there. And then just kind of ended up going into some of the more emerging businesses at Google. And then just kind of getting stuck there, not in a bad way, but I just never thought I'd be there for eight years, but I was having fun. By the eighth year, I was kind of like, I've always wanted to start companies retrospective. I was about 10 years out of business school at that point. And I was kind of like, this is a fork in the road in my life of whether I like go into the startups or if I go stay at a big company and I'd really nice career trajectory. I just kind of left, much to the chagrin of like. Family surprise to friends, and I started working on a bunch of different stuff. experimented some stuff in VR early on. Started doing some angel investing. You know, I was a little bit further along, so I, could, I was lucky to do that. But I really wanted to start a company. I didn't know what to start. I didn't know what to do. But I was trying to meet good people. Met my co-founder Randy Jimenez, who was this amazing CTO, who had started a company called Ollie before, but it was also CTO of a company called Single Platform that was an early success when the New York tech ecosystem was really getting going in the late 2000s, early 2010s. And we just kind of wanted to work together. (laughs) And we started iterating on different ideas. And we had really good relationships with VCs at the time. So we were able to kind of put together an idea that we wanted to work on, that we really believed in, and had conviction in, and we raised capital against that. It was a lot of fun until the product didn't work. And it was like the first time in my career where I was like, oh my God, it wasn't working. We had been really, really conservative with our burn at the time. And we decided to pivot the company, started thinking about different things. And then we got to where we are now. And now we you know, we have a successful company, growing company, 40 people work there, always risk involved, but we feel really good about what we're doing. We are trying to build the biggest software suite within Shopify. We're basically acquiring and building Shopify software. We eventually want to go to Amazon and other e-commerce platforms versus what our competitors do. We're trying to integrate the software and build and suite it and use modern tech stacks and modern tools to build it. We brought on a third uh, co-founder, Laurel and who was a friend of mine socially, but was kind of my go-to with e-commerce and knew Shopify really well and built the team. That's kind of how I got there. In the meantime, I think a lot of people know this about me. I also had been investing and doing a lot of stuff um, in and around Web3, crypto, a lot of stuff. So, me and my best friend from college, and the person who brought me into Google, we ended up starting a fund together. We thought it was just going to be a side hustle. We were just doing it because we were investing a lot of our own money. And then we grew it, we we're successful at it. And we've now hired out a team. We have incredible partners there managing the fund. But, you know, it's kind of instinctual. Like what I love doing is working with early stage, innovative ideas, disruptive ideas, and even our companies stay tuned. We're acquiring people who have built businesses and have innovated, and we're using creative financing mechanisms to do so around a specific theme. So that's kind of how I ended up in startups. I just do. <laughs> and versus like, I don't try to overanalyze or think what I just instinctually try to do and work really, really hard. And as you've probably seen from investor updates and stuff, I'm like super transparent, good, bad. I try to send investor updates the first week of every month. So it's kind of a long-winded answer.
0: (laughs) So it's funny because when LPs or people say, what do you look for when you're making these investments? And we say, definitely the team and people. And they're like, well, that's cliche. But like, you're a great example. We saw characteristics in you around some of the things you mentioned. the the hustle, the vision of the future that didn't maybe exist yet, the resilience. We're excited to be involved because we do know that companies pivot and some of the best companies out there started as something else. So I'd love to just dig in a little more on the pivot, not specifically what the pivot was, but the interaction in the moment that you knew like, okay, this is not working. And we have an insight of what could be working.
1: Yeah. So one of the things I've always realized when you're trying to build a SaaS company is you got to make sure that you're selling into a buyer that has real budgets and is willing to spend on your product. When we built a product at the time that people were kind of using, but no one was even going to get close to spending money on it. And we signed up a bunch of free trials, but it was very clear that there wasn't going to be product market fit as much as we had the vision and we had the early stage and we thought we were going in thematically. You kind of always want to follow the budgets and who the buyer is at, specifically the company.
0: Follow the money, dude.
1: You always do that. And so I quickly realized, and our team quickly realized, that we didn't really have a clear person that we were selling into. The value of the product that we were trying to, to build, we were trying to eliminate people's jobs rather than help people grow. You don't want to look at the cost center. You always want to like be in the budget within the growth. So it was kind of like DOA. Like If you can't do that, you're DOA. We kind of realized that like selling into media companies and doing something in the media space when it was largely being commoditized by the existing social media platforms and was just not going to work. So we just basically we'd preserved our capital, did a full stop. We hired very little, so we kept the team was very, very lean. And we ended up just sitting for a year trying to figure out, experimenting on things. Realized that Shopify was largely becoming the dominant e-commerce platform. One of the key insights that we had was if you were to start a company five, six years ago in the e-commerce space, and you wanted to do like sophisticated things, subscriptions, offers, all of this kind of stuff, you would probably likely build a custom software stack, or you would use like a Magento or a Demandware or something else. What had changed in the market was that Shopify had created an app store. They always had that app store, but they were investing in the app store, and they were providing tools, headless tools, all sorts of stuff that enabled software to be built on top of Shopify. What also had changed was that Amazon and Shopify were becoming the two predominant places that you sell. So if you look at just your e-commerce, like stack's probably not the right word, but your e-commerce setup, if you're like a brand, you're selling on Shopify, you're selling on Amazon, your sneaker store, you're selling on different sneaker marketplaces, and then you're selling in-store. That's give or take here or there. We wanted to own as much as possible the software around that. We also started realizing that we had relationships in the debt world and financing world and all sorts of stuff. We partnered with a couple of people who are really smart in that area. And all the problems I had trying to find product market fit and maybe the scar tissue around that made me realize, why don't I just go buy product market fit and acquire product market fit? Maybe I was just tired. I didn't want to try to figure out product market fit, but finding out good product, like finding good product market fit. Finding stuff that had good product market fit in categories within e-commerce that we liked. So that was where we got. I think the overall key lesson that I learned over and over again is just we started this, but like the team is incredible and we've hired really, really strong people functionally. So like we have a very strong corp dev person, we have a very strong customer service person. People has been a really important aspect of everything we've done. Like you can kind of drive the bus. Like at the end of the day, it was all about the people that we had.
0: That's awesome. So when you made the pivot, did you feel like you needed to align with your investors? Because even if you don't have a board...
1: So we had a board. This is really important for the earliest investors, given that I invest in a bunch of companies myself as well. A lot of these companies are stack safes over and over and over again. There's no governance in any of these companies. We, from day one, priced our first dollar in. So we did a price round in 20, I guess beginning of 2019. and. We did one safe in our next round, and then we priced around again. But we've always had very clean governance, even to this day, whenever there are big decisions that are to be made. We have board meetings every quarter. We vote on everything. There's no decisions made in a vacuum. When we needed to make changes to the company, and even when we make big decisions now, we are very transparent to the board. and We're always letting them know on everything, obviously, and approving everything. I think we've got over 50, 60 investors in the company at this point. I try to be very transparent with them. I mentioned this earlier, every month I get an investor update and I'm shocked seeing it on the other side. There's so many companies that just don't send investor updates. Mm -hmm. So we've been very good about having good hygiene on how we work with our investors. And I think that sense of transparency gives you a lot of rope because they know what's happening within the company.
0: I say this to founders all the time and we have 250 companies in our portfolio and Right now, we're doing our quarterly updates to all of our LPs, and we're chasing a million companies that haven't sent us updates. And it's just a head-scratcher for me because you just build so much confidence and rapport with your investors just by keeping them up to date. I mean, no one's telling you what to do. Like We just want to be there along for the ride. It's always interesting to me.
1: Yep. I think that's part of the reason why we've had a lot of wiggle room with our investors. And my investors have been very supportive of everything that I've always wanted to pursue because. We've been very transparent with them along the way. And I need that, right? Like when we were negotiating an acquisition, I called upon people who maybe be small investors, but they know exactly what's going on. And you call them up and they have an area of expertise. And look, our company, we're working very hard to build a massive business here. But at the end of the day, you want to make sure you have a great relationship even beyond that with all the investors over time.
0: Especially when then you go start a venture fund.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was by accident. That's
0: <laughs> That was very funny for us because, fun fact to the audience, we were the first investor into Surge's first round, as well as into his co-founder, Mike Dudas' first company, or his company, The Block. So I didn't, for some reason, know that you guys even knew each other. So I knew you independently, I've known Mike for a long time. He was a longtime Techstars mentor. And then I forget who called me and was like, Oh, you know, what do you think about the whole six man fund? And I, (laughs) Mike and Serge. And I was like, Wait, how do they know each other? And like, how hilarious that we're investors in both of their companies.
1: Yeah. So the story behind that is like a super, really, really fun ride. So Mike Deuce and I went to college together at Stanford. And then we've been great friends since we were 18 years old. So that's 25 years. And I actually got my job at Google because of this. So just like I graduated in 02 into a really bad economy, I graduated business school in 09 into an equally bad economy after the financial crisis.
0: You're really hitting all the
1: Oh, I, <laughs> I was also born in 1980 in Lebanon during the war. So <laughs> it's like every year. Yeah, exactly. anyway. <laughs> yeah. So basically what happened was I was very early in Bitcoin in 2013. When I was running the App Store, we met the founders of Coinbase, and Fred was trying to work with us to understand what we could or couldn't do with the Google Play Store. We were introduced to them via Union Square Ventures, who had been an investor. And at that time, as I was working with Fred, decided to like, buy some Bitcoin. <laughs> and then you kind of fall down the rabbit hole. And it was always just a personal thing. When Mike left Google and went, worked at Braintree and initially got into crypto as well, Later started the block, I angel invested in the block and knew that community as well. And then we have a really fun story that transpired after that. Mike and I started an on-chain fund where in 2020, I was one of the larger whales on NBA Top Shot. I'm a huge basketball fan. And I was buying a bunch of these NFTs in the Discord. I remember everyone thinking I was crazy. This was before like the NFT craze happened. Then we decided, okay, maybe it'd be fun if we all kind of worked together. And we brought in a bunch of our friends to go and buy a bunch of NFTs at the end of 2020, 2021. We got really into it. We were enjoying it, involved in the communities, the culture, the art, also a fairly large art collector. I love to collect art and just got into it. Three months later, we're like, well, we know everyone in this ecosystem because we're right in the middle of Buying and selling all of these NFTs and crypto. And we had done a lot of stuff in our PA at the time as well. We did a lot of it together just because we were good friends, but we actually were managing this first NFT wallet fund thing that we were doing with our friends. That turned out very well because the timing was well. And then we ended up, we're like, okay, why don't we start investing in startups? So we raised a smaller operator fund where Mike was working at Paxos on a full time basis. And obviously I was working on my company we started investing in a bunch of startups on the side. A couple of those became hits unexpectedly or maybe expectedly.
0: Give yourself some credit.
1: <laughs> Our LPs were very, very happy and it was an awesome experience. We were in companies like Etherscan, Step In, Magic Eden. I think instinctually, a lot of the lessons that I took from Stay Tuned and I take from Google Play and maybe my previous VC experience was that, I always invested in like platforms and app ecosystems. And blockchain is just like a large app ecosystem or platform at the end of the day. So we had lived entrepreneurial lives, but we also started this new platform emerging. Mike ended up leaving his job and become key man of the fund and running it on a full-time basis. Obviously, I'm very involved on a day-to-day basis as well. But it's something that we absolutely love doing. The fund's become an incredible. We've got incredible people there too hired some of the top talent in crypto there. It's something that I'm incredibly proud of, because it's something that we've done with a friend who I've known for 25 years with a tremendous amount of passion. And we've also brought incredible people. Our other partners, Aaron and Carl, are brilliant, brilliant crypto minds, brilliant investing minds. And sometimes things happen, good things happen, and it was was awesome. So that's been a lot of fun just generally. And If you kind of look at my career and everything that I've done, it's led up to all of these things. Like we initially talked about, I went straight to venture because I wanted to work with startups. Venture wasn't what it was now with all this mega funds and all the stuff that's happening. And I could have gone in a completely different direction, like a lot of my classmates in business school did and a lot of other people that were my peers. But I've always gone back to startups, innovation, ecosystems, platforms, and even pivoted my company towards that again. I hope all of it succeeds. What I do promise everyone is whenever I do something, I do it 110%, no matter what it is. I'm about to be a father, which is something I'm very excited about.
0: I love that we're announcing that on the
1: podcast. Yeah. So I have a baby due in December. So that's something that I'm very excited to put even more energy for. I know my life is going to change. I guess my next baby is a real baby. So it's something that I'm very excited about.
0: So it's interesting. I always ask guests this question, like what's keeping you up at night or what are you thinking about that you feel worried about? You have two hats to wear. So I'll ask you from a founder perspective with the market as it is, like things, concerns around the trajectory of stay tuned or the macro. And then with your investor hat, obviously there's been a lot of shakeup in crypto and in VC in general. So some things to be concerned about there as well. So it's fun that I get two answers from you.
1: Yeah. So from a founder perspective, I'm always worried about burn, runway, people, team being happy. Are we going to hit the next milestone? That keeps me up all night. We've done an incredible job as a company, but we have a ton of work to do. The next six months are critical for us. And we have the holiday season coming up. We have ambitious plans to go acquire. We just raised a massive debt facility from a great venture debt fund. But it's always challenging because you're always worrying about your burn. Holiday season doesn't go well. That's scary, right? So I worry about all the things that the founders typically turn. You just, you've got to keep the bus going in the right direction and put gasoline. So that's kind of from a macro perspective. I'm actually pretty optimistic for the general, the next year. I think there's going to be a little bit more clarity of interest rates, even we're filling this in the summer, but there's some clarity this week on the interest rates environment. I think a big part of it will be. There's a set of companies that we really need to go public in Q4 that will provide more liquidity into the ecosystem, but also provide confidence. And I think it will bring, it will trickle down to startups. So let's hope Clavio goes out well. Let's Tripe goes out well. Let's hope attentive goes out well. I'm not a stockholder of any of these companies, but just I'm rooting for them because these are generally the categories that I'm in and around. And that's really, really important. We on the crypto side. When I think about like risk, you look at crypto as like a risk on asset to SaaS, which is like startup SaaS, and which is a risk on asset to the public markets in the NASDAQ. So it's just a higher on the risker. The biggest issue right now and is top of mind for everyone is like regulation and how the government is going to handle it. There's tons of talented teams who are still here. Obviously, a lot of tourists are in AI now or in something else. Fundamentally, like permissionless finance, automation of smart contracts, non-fungible IP, like NFTs, all of this stuff needs to exist in my mind. And I'm a huge believer in the core technology of it. What keeps me up on that is how does regulation evolve around it? I think there's a huge risk on a lot of the opportunity moving away from the US. I think there is an inevitability that it will all happen. But the biggest question is, does it happen in the US or does it happen somewhere else? but we'll see. You have to stay optimistic around that. Funds are a little bit different because you can think to look at from a five to 10-year horizon. Companies, you're always worried about what the next 12 to 24 months are going to look like. I think from a five to 10-year horizon on a fund perspective, if you're really patient and nuanced around how you're investing and you're investing in great teams, like we said before, you're deploying at a smart rate. And you've got a great group of people who have deep domain expertise, which is the types of people that have been hired at six-man. They have the strongest domain expertise, I think, in the world. You'll be very good at a five to 10-year horizon if you're thinking about Web3, crypto, and a long-term perspective. So I have to be optimistic on both. But I think if I think about the two things that I worry about, from a company perspective, burn, runway, growth, um, from fund perspective, regulation.
0: What's uh, one idea that experts in your field say that you disagree with?
1: I think entrepreneurship is ageless. There's, I think, a bias that you have to be young to be an entrepreneur. Nice.
0: We like that perspective.
1: (laughs) I actually think, like, my dad's a phenomenal entrepreneur and he continues to do phenomenal things as an entrepreneur. I think it's a mindset you take risks, you're okay with failing, but you'll do everything in your power to succeed. So I think it's an ageless perfection. Like, I want to be an entrepreneur till the day I die. I don't ever want that to stop.
0: Definitely everywhere. I mean...
1: Everywhere. On. Exactly.
0: <laughs> Let's try to say that as many times. <laughs> I love that answer. That's awesome. And then the data actually supports that, right? Don't they say like the average age of a successful founder now is like 44 or something?
1: I love that. I didn't know that, but I'm going to use it going forward. Yeah, exactly. I turned 44 in February. So oh, I'm going to on my 44th birthday.
0: <laughs> so... If you had to distill all of your talents, because you have so many out there, down to kind of your one like superpower, what would you say that thing is that people know search
1: for? I think just working with great people, I hire great people, bring great people. I think I'm particularly strong in forging relationships with people who are better than me at doing things. And I think that's helped me in my career. And this goes from employees to investors to everything. So I think Relationships mean everything to me and and finding great people. I was never the like strongest engineer when I was an engineer in college. I was never strongest finance person. When I did early sales at Google, I was never the strongest like salesperson. But I think from a relationship person perspective is my biggest thing.
0: I love that. And I feel like that's so true. Like all the people that I've met in your orbit are overlapping ones or some of my favorite humans. So I love that one for you. Okay, speed round. As we finish this up, it's been a quick 30 minutes already. What's a book you're reading or podcast or some type of content that you're really enjoying right now besides the trying to figure out a name for your baby?
1: Yeah, I listen to a ton of podcasts generally. This isn't going to be like an overly intellectual. I try to go running every day and I listen to podcasts every morning. So I typically listen to podcasts on basketball. (laughs) There's one called Lakers Exceptionalism that I love. I listen to a lot of podcasts on like the typical business podcasts, entrepreneurship podcasts, a whole long list of them. I, I listen to a bunch of stuff on crypto. Well, I'll use the I'm a Lakers fan. So I'll use I've really gotten into one called Lakers Exception. All right, some, we're gonna so have to check that out. Plug that.
0: That's a New York Knicks fan. I will have to yeah. uh, make an exception and listen to the Lakers <laughs> content. If you could live anywhere in the world for one year, where would it be?
1: I would probably say the South of France, if I'm just doing it from like a pure lifestyle perspective. But if it's not from a pure lifestyle perspective, I want to live in New York City. That's why I live in New York City.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'll take the South of France for one year. Yeah. I like that. Having just come back from seven weeks in Europe, I'd say it's a good choice. Okay. And while I have sirens here, we can say there's some good things about New York and some (laughs) challenging things. like Every time I'm doing a podcast, there seems to be a fire.
1: Well, I'll go back to the original point, and it's been in the thread throughout this conversation. I think the most talented and best people I've ever met in my life, anecdotally, have always been in and around New York City. That's why I love living here.
0: As a born and raised New Yorker, (laughs) I love it. Favorite productivity hack. I do notice that you are quite responsive, seem to be one of your superpowers as a founder. So what keeps you so productive?
1: I'm inbox zero. And whenever there's something that I can't respond to from an email, I take that email and I put it as a calendar entry. So let's say... So I'm always inbox zero within probably a 12-hour period from morning to evening. And if there's something that I can't get to and I need to get to in two days, I just paste it into a calendar entry and I put it as like a 30-minute slot in my calendar and I make sure to do it. I
0: love that. Hear that, all you people who can't Get to your inbox. Just put it as a 15 minute slot. I
1: love it. I think at the end of every day and the beginning of every morning, what I do is before I go to bed, I clear out my inbox and get to zero. But I'm trying to do it throughout the day. And then when I wake up in the morning, I do it again between six and seven a.m. And then at seven a.m., I go for a run and then exercise from some shape or form. Or I kind of just take a break and don't think about anything work related. And then I get the day started. I usually start between nine and 10, 10 o'clock most days. That's worked for me, but inbox zero, it's my to-do list.
0: Love it. All right. Where can listeners find you? Final wrap-up.
1: I'm on Twitter, S-E-R-G-E-K-A-S-S, but I'm not super Twitter, but that's my handle across everything, LinkedIn, Twitter, social. So it's just S-E-R-G-E-K-A-S-S.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Serge, from Stay Tuned and Sixth Man. <laughs> Very fun to do a podcast getting both of your perspectives. So thanks so much.
1: Awesome. All right. Thanks, Jen. All right. Thank you. Thanks for joining us and hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you listening, you might also be interested to learn more about Everywhere. We're a first check pre-seed fund that does exactly that, invests everywhere. We're a community of 500 founders and operators, and we've invested in over 250 companies around the globe. Find us at our website, everywhere.vc, on LinkedIn, and through our regular founder spotlights on Substack. Be sure to subscribe, and we'll catch you on the next episode.